58 to 57. This is the word of God. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So, the, so they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said, it, said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that for the whole nation perish. He did, not say the, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the, peop among the people of Judea, Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who, who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. This thus says the Lord. Thank you, Willie. Let me pray before we start. You've made it clear in the scriptures, Father, and we've said it, emphasized it again in our worship service today that we may remember salvation is a work of your spirit. And we beg you now as we study and learn your word and hear from you, please, Lord, make our ears hear. Give us hearts that are soft and that are desirous of your voice, that we may, like Lazarus, find life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so when you preach on John 11, on Lazarus's resurrection, um, the resurrection itself gets most of the attention. And that's not wrong, but if we're not careful, the main heart and the main thrust of the story can often be eclipsed 
and overshadowed by the miracle itself. If you take a look at chapter 11 as a whole, there's 58 verses in the whole chapter. And only six verses is about Lazarus' resurrection. That's not actually the main, main, main thrust of it. So what does the other 52 verses talk about? A lot of things. Jesus' identity, who he claims to be, what he claims to offer us. And also, it talks about something else that's really profound. Um, It tells us that the reason why some believe Jesus' claim about his identity and what he's claiming to giving us and and who he claims to be, it tells us the reason uh, why some believe and why some reject. What is the reason for belief? What is the reason for disbelief? And we'll actually see that John is saying here, the reason for belief and disbelief actually has very little to do with the amount of information or amount of proof that somebody has. It actually, John is claiming, has to do more with fear and anxiety. And I, I get it. I know. I mean, we all know that if Jesus is claims about being Lord and Savior, and we, if we believe that claim, if we accept that claim, we know that deep inside what that really means. That means he gets to run our lives. That means we don't have final say anymore. And that is absolutely frightening. To give somebody that kind of authority over your life is frightening. And I get it. But hopefully by the end of the passage today, we'll see what what John is trying to show us, that he is a God that can be trusted. And he's a God that's worth giving all of our lives to. Three things I want to point out. What Jesus offers, why some refuse it, how he assures us. What Jesus offers, why some refuse it, and how he assures us. Let's get to it. Point number one, what Jesus offers. Our God, if you read the Bible, our God is a God that loves to teach spiritual truths through physical events or through physical things. For example, you read the Old Testament, you read the book of Leviticus, and you see all these instructions about how to construct the Old Testament temple. Right? It's filled with all the instructions about, down to the detail, about the temple itself, about where God resides in the temple, his glory resides in the temple, and before you enter, there has to be a water basin where you wash off uh, your impurity, and then after that, there's a sacrificial altar where the lamb is slain so that he's representing uh, the one sacrifice for your sin, and only after that, you can, the, the priest can then go and enter into God. All these physical things he constructed about the Old Testament temple, why? To teach us of spiritual realities. To teach spiritual truths. What? That God is holy. That man is sinful. And that to enter into communion with him, first we must be purified from our sin. Our sin must be dealt with. Those are spiritual truths that the physical temple is meant to teach us or point to. And that's in a sense what's, what's happening here. God orchestrated a physical event. Jesus resurrecting a dead man, Lazarus, to teach us of a spiritual reality of what actually happens when somebody believes in Jesus' claims about being God in flesh that's come to redeem us. What happens? Well, like Lazarus, they'll truly be transferred from death to life. When Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4-5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. When he said that, he wasn't trying to be poetic. Colossians 2.13, And you who were 
dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. That isn't poetic language. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This dead and alive language, it's not poetic language. Paul wasn't trying to be symbolic. It's not like when you're really tired and you say, oh man, I just feel so dead right now. It's not that when you're in big trouble and you say, oh no, I'm dead now. No. Paul was trying to describe a true state of spiritual deadness without Christ. And that with Christ, you have true life unto God. Just like Lazarus was truly dead from, and being brought to true life. Look at the end of verse 38. Jesus came to the tomb. What did Martha say? By this time, there's a bad odor. He smells for he has been there for four days. Lazarus was truly dead. This wasn't some long coma. His body was decaying. He truly, really was dead, just like we are spiritually without Christ. But what happens when dead Lazarus was confronted by Jesus and his voice? Uh, verse 43, Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. What happened? By the power of his word, Lazarus came to life. By the way, who else in the Old Testament can you think of that has the authority to give life out of nothing just by his mere voice? Yahweh, God. You see, it's a physical reality. The physical reality is before Christ came, Lazarus was dead, but after he encountered Christ, he came to life. That's a physical reality. The spiritual truth God is trying to teach us from that physical reality is that without Christ, yes, we're truly spiritually dead. Dead. But if we have communion with Christ, we will come truly to life unto God. So here's the question. How can we know whether or not someone has been brought from spiritual deadness to life? I mean, with Lazarus' physical resurrection, that's, that's pretty obvious, right? That there's a dead man and he's been brought to life. But what about the spiritual resurrection that this physical resurrection is meant to portray? How can we know? Do we all of a sudden walk around with halos in our head? Do we stop saying you and start saying thou? How do you know that you're, you're alive in Christ? No, not those things. Okay. Fortunately, Jesus explains it here. One, there's two things I want to point out. One, to be spiritually alive means you have the privilege to boldly call God Father. Look at the end of verse 41 and 42. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. You have the benefit and privilege to call God Father. Jesus prayed to the Father for the benefit of the people standing there to show them the kind of life they can have in Him. If you are one with Him, then like Him, you too get to call God as Father. How does Jesus teach the disciples to pray? We just did it. We do it every week in our, in our Lord's Prayer. How does it start? Our Father who art in heaven, not boss, not general, not sir, Abba, Father. You see the level of intimacy God has commanded you to approach him with? That's what it means to be spiritually alive. A pastor of a church in Vancouver wrote a prayer document based on the Lord's Prayer, and in that document he shared a story of his friend. His friend, his name is Stan. Stan and his wife tried for years to adopt a child from an orphanage. This orphanage is poorly run, not enough resources, not enough workers. 
and, and the children there are often neglected. And it was really hard to adopt a child, and they, they got to go through all these hoops, and finally, after years of trying, they got one. They, they, they adopt a child, a boy, whose name is Nicholas. And Nicholas, when they first adopted him, was in bad condition. Um, I quote, it said he was seldom held, dirty, skinny, and scared. Now, when the, when the pastor finally met Nicholas, and finally met Stan and Nicholas, a few months have already passed, and Nicholas already looked much better and much healthier and much happier. And the pastor said to his friend Stan, Wow, Nicholas is so lucky to have you as his adopting father. And Stan replied, and I quote, No, John, you're wrong. You're wrong. I'm the lucky one. I won the lottery here. No one in the world could be happier than me to have Nicholas as my son. Stan's reply got the pastor thinking of his own adoption by his eternal father. Yes, of course, we're privileged and we're glad to be adopted as God, God's child through Christ. But, he said, is it possible that God is also thrilled about being our father? Like Stan was to Nicholas. You ever view yourself like that? As the one in whom God delights to call his child? Martin Luther said, in giving us these words, our father, God binds himself to us. To be spiritual life, one, you get to call God father, and he gets to call you child. Two, your religiosity, your religious attempts, your spiritual disciplines can finally be freed from guilt. One, you get to call God father. Two, your spiritual disciplines can finally be freed from guilt. Look, a lot of our attempts to be religious to be spiritual, going to church today, are often really driven, at least mine is, I know, oftentimes, by guilt. And it's tiring. If you're anything like me, you know the kind of tiredness I'm talking about. Who here ever feels the push to do extra spiritual things after they've done something wrong? Man, Saturday night was rough. I need me some Jesus tomorrow. Why? Why is that? Why does our spiritual or our need to do spiritual things often intensify after we fall into sin? And why often do we lose that urgency if we haven't fallen into sin? Because if we're honest, I think much of our religiosity is driven by guilt. We need to soothe ourselves from mistakes we've done, and that's why we do a lot of spiritual things. That's why a lot of people come to church. That's why a lot of people read the Bible. That's why a lot of people pray. Because they're driven from the guilt of the past. And they want, it, they want to somehow soothe their conscience. That's why they come here. But look at what Jesus said to Lazarus in verse 43 to 44. Look at the life he's offering. He frees us from guilt. Verse 43 to 44. Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Verse 44. The dead man came out. Notice something interesting. Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. But verse 44, it didn't say that Lazarus came out, did it? Who came out? The dead man came out. Why? Why is he described as the dead man who came out and not as Lazarus come out? To emphasize who he is now in Christ. John is saying the man who has true life in Christ will no longer primarily be known from who he is in the past. He's no longer Lazarus. In Christ now, no matter your past, you are the dead man who has come to life. 
That's your identity. That's who you are. Take off your grave clothes. Jesus says in verse 44, you need them no more. Friends, in Christ, there's no more room for guilt. Throw those grave clothes away. You're righteous. You're a child of a king. What is true life? What does that mean? To be spiritually alive, one, you get to call God Father. And two, you're free, completely free from guilt. Well, okay, but you haven't really answered the question of how a person that is spiritually alive looks like. Those are the things that they maybe believe in, but what do they look like on the outside? Well, there's a lot of ways they look like. Let me just give a few examples that I can think of. Um, an example of somebody who's spiritually alive is you'll see them as somebody who can, who can handle both failure and success really, really well. When they're confronted with failure, they can handle it because they know that the failure doesn't define them. They're a child of God. Their failure isn't who they are. And okay, but also when they're successful, they can handle that too. Because they know no matter how high the world takes them, they know no measure of success can ever live up to the identity of who I am in Christ. I could be CEO of a Fortune 500 company. That's nothing compared to being called a child of God. Nothing. It's a side note, it's funny, in bookstores, you go there, you see a lot of books that write about how to handle failure. A lot of them. I have not yet seen one book that says how to handle power and success. Without knowing that power and success destroys people, maybe even more than failure. The one who is a child of God knows how to handle failure and success really well. And they don't let those things handle them because they have a, a robust, a, a, a sturdy identity as a child of God. Um, perhaps another way you can tell is that these people um, have high moral and biblical standards in themselves, but they can also bounce back really quickly when they fail. They have this, this drive to live for the one who's given their life for them. They try their utmost to live up to his standards and arrange their lives to please him. But at the same time, you see them having this amazing capacity to apply grace to themselves. It's, it's weird. And they're, they really want to serve God, but when they fail... They have, they, they're able to apply grace to themselves really quickly because they know that who they are, they're not guilty anymore. They don't, they don't get overly lost in guilt and self-loathing when they fail. Why? Because they've thrown their grave, grave clothes away. They know their status in Christ is not guilty. This is what it means to be truly alive. This is what Christ is offering. You have the right to call God Father. You have the assurance that God will never again count you as guilty this makes you be able to ha handle failure. This makes you able to handle success. This makes you not addicted to your image, uh, your social image. This makes you have a sturdy identity. This makes you uh, a drive to push and really serve him with our life. But when you fail, this, you're reminded of who you are. You're not guilty anymore. You know people like that? Do you want to be somebody like that? Now, some of you heard what I said. And, and you want that, that, that's desirous to you, that, that's something that you long for. But maybe some of you, some of you maybe weren't even able to hear a word I said. Why? Because you're still stuck in the fact that 10 minutes ago I said, Jesus resurrected a dead man. And you're, you're still saying, 
what? <laughs> Can we go back to that? Jesus resurrected a dead man? And, and you hear the Bible claim that and you say, well, to believe that is blind faith. There's no proof that it happened. And if there's no proof that it happened, it can't be true. And if it's not true, that disqualifies everything you just said. That disqualifies everything Jesus just claims um, as what it means to be alive and a child of God. That's why I can't hear anything you said, because I just don't know if that's true. I, don't ha- I have no proof for it. Well, let me first say this. I agree with you. I agree in that all of Jesus' claims about being God in flesh and all that, his, what he's offering you here in this, in this passage, if, if, if Lazarus didn't really come to life, if this event didn't actually happen, you're right. Everything he said falls to pieces. You don't need to listen to any of them. They're all false. But if it's true, if it's true, then everything he said is real, and you have to take heed of it. So what you're saying is this. I first need some kind of proof, some kind of empirical proof that this actually happened. I need proof so that I can believe his claims. But what John does in the next part of the passage, he's here to tell you, me, that more proof won't really help you. It won't help you. Let's go to point number two. Why some refuse it. Look at verse 45 to 46. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. Some believed. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. See what's going on here. There are two groups of people. They both saw the proof. They both saw what happened firsthand. However, some believed, but others disbelieved. And they reported it to the Pharisees, who we know in chapter 10 wanted to kill Jesus. Notice, again, both saw proof. Both witnessed the same miracle. Some believed. But for others, witnessing the miracle, seeing the proof, didn't help them a single bit. It actually made them more antagonistic to Jesus. It actually made them hate him more. And then look at the reaction that the Pharisees and the chief priests had in verse 46. They also received firsthand report from firsthand witnesses of the miracle. But look at their response in verse 47. What did they do? They immediately called a meeting to talk about how to stop Jesus. They didn't even take a single second to consider whether or not this is true. I mean, you'd think if somebody comes to you and says, a dude was raised from the dead, you'd be like, let me look into that. Let me invest 10 minutes into that. At least, what did they do? They they didn't care. They heard it. They wanted to kill him. The proof didn't help them at all. Why? John says, because they never wanted it to be true in the first place. It wasn't even an option for them to be true. Jesus could have done a hundred miracles in front of their faces and they won't believe because they never wanted to consider it as true in the first place. So why are they so resistant? Look at verse 48. They don't, the lack of belief was never a result of a lack of proof. So then why? Why are they so resistant? Look at verse 48. It says, In this meeting called the Sanhedrin, which is the highest legal and political and religious uh, meeting at the day, only second to Romans' authority, they got together and they said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. At the day, it was Roman occupied, uh, uh, the Jews were. So, in other words, they're saying, if Jesus continues all this mess he's making, the Roman government 
will view Jesus and what he's doing as a religio-political uproar. They're going to think that this whole Jesus thing is an attempt to take away Rome's authority. And if they, if they think that, they're going to then take away what they said, our temple and our nation. If the Roman is thinking that Jesus is going to, is going to do an uproar, a, a coup, then they're going to take away the little religious and political freedom that we have. So we got to stop this. Because if it happens, Rome's will take over, and there goes our power, there goes our personal agendas, there goes our autonomy. And that's just too much change in my life. I don't want that. In other words, they saw the miracle with their own eyes, they didn't believe. They heard it firsthand from multiple firsthand witnesses, they won't believe. They had ample proof and reason to consider this is true, but yet they didn't believe why. Because their problem wasn't that they had too little proof. It was because they loved their own agendas, power, and autonomy way too much. That's the problem. That's why they didn't believe. Because if they did, they'd lose their power and their autonomy. And it's scary when that happens, isn't it? It's scary. Can you, can you empathize with them? Have you ever been at a spot where you had no power? Have you ever been at a spot where somebody else had control over you and you were helpless? Do you remember how scary it was? Can you empathize with them? It's scary. It's frightening. They didn't want that. So let's continue with the story a little more, then I'll, I'll explain some of these things. At, the, at this point in the meeting, a chief priest named Caiaphas stood up and they devised this plan for Jesus' crucifixion. Look at verse 49. You know nothing at all, he said. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. This is, this is what he's saying. He's saying there's a way to protect us from this uproar that Jesus is causing. It's better for one man to perish than for the Romans to take us over. What he's saying is, here's a plan. Let's make Jesus the scapegoat. Let's make him the bad guy. Let's portray him as an enemy of Rome. Let's caricature him to be this religio-political coup leader that they're scared he will be, who wants to overtake Caesar by claiming to be the Messiah. That way, the Romans will kill him as a criminal in our place. It's better for one man to die than for the Romans to take us over. Let's make this happen. If he dies, friends, if he dies, we get to keep our power. If he dies, we get to keep our autonomy. If he dies, we get to keep our personal agendas and our authority over our own lives. They rejected Jesus not because they had too little proof. They rejected Jesus because they loved their own agendas and power and autonomy way too much. Now, let me go back and explain. It's a bit of a rabbit trail, but stick with me. I think it's important for us to, to get this. It, it's tempting to think for us here to say this. Well, that, that's them. That's them. That's not me. If I saw the miracle firsthand, if I had empirical proof that it happened... I will believe. The reason why I don't believe Jesus' claim is not because I'm afraid to give him power and autonomy over my life. The reason why I don't believe Jesus' claim is just because I don't have proof. And I'm not the kind of person, I'm not the kind of person that makes leaps of faith without having proof. Well, I'd like to propose that actually you are. We all are. You make leaps of faith without proof every day on really, really important things on really almost everything. Let me, let me show you. I see some parents here. 
So I know that you've gone through the whole ultrasound process, right? Patty's pregnant with our second child. We went to the doctor, uh, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, and we got an ultrasound. We went to the hospital. The hospital looked nice. It seemed reputable, had a website. I saw doctors and nurses running around, went to the doctor's um, uh, uh, room, and he put the sonogram on Tati's belly, and then you see a baby appear on the screen, and then we're all like, ooh, ah, baby, so cute. Um, and, and we both, we both, you know, all, all of a sudden, straight away believe the baby on that screen is ours. But why? We don't have proof that the baby on the screen is ours. For all we know, it could have been a pre-recorded video of another baby that they're showing us. Oh, but the baby on the screen looks like you. No, it doesn't. It looks like a mushed alien. It doesn't look like me. I love him, but it doesn't look like anybody. Yeah, but, you know, um, uh, of course you believed it. It was a nice hospital, and yet they had a website, you said, and you saw everything look legit. Of course you believed. Yeah, but you see, none of those things are proof that the baby on the screen is my baby. They're merely reasons that make me think it's very likely that the baby on the screen is my baby. But it doesn't prove it. So at the end of the day, I still made a leap of faith without proof. You see? Another example is food packages that have the nutrition print on the outside. Why do you have the audacity to believe that it's true? You haven't actually tested it. You don't have empirical proof. Yeah, the packaging looks credible, and you've heard about it from other friends that, that you know, can, can say good things about it. You've read about it online, and you bought it at a reputable place. But at the end of the day, none of those things are empirical proof that the printout of how much protein and vitamins and carbs it has is actually true. See? You made a leap of faith without proof, merely with good reason. Good reason was enough for you to make that leap of faith. I went to a coffee shop yesterday and I paid 40,000 rupiah for a latte. And they said it's some good bean from some place in Sumatra and this is how much it cost. And I said, great, let me get it. I have no proof that it actually cost 40,000 rupiah. I don't know what bean they served me, but the place looked nice. The barista looked like he knew what he was talking about. You know, my Mindiri account worked. There was a lot of reason for me to take the leap of faith that the beans they were talking about was mine. You see? You all, we all make leaps of faith every day without having proof. Good reason is enough for us to believe in something. You might say, yeah, but those are all examples of small decisions in life. You know, but when it comes to big life-altering decisions like accepting Jesus... I need more than just good reason. For, for the big things in life, the big decisions in life, I need proof to believe in them. No, you don't. What is marriage? What is marriage? You have no empirical proof that the person you marry is not going to cheat on you 10 years from now. You don't. You don't have empirical proof that they're not just marrying you for your money. You don't have empirical, you don't have empirical proof that they're not going to hurt you, they're not going to leave you lonely. You have a lot of good reason to think that they probably will not do those things because of when you dated and when you're engaged. But you don't have proof. At the end of the day, when you say I do, it's a leap of faith. And you're saying this is the person that I want to spend the rest of my life with. You make big decisions on leaps of faith. 
every day. Okay. So we might say, okay, well, the things you mentioned, like the ultrasound nutritional value, even marrying somebody, okay, I'll admit. I'll admit that I took leaps of faith in believing those things that I believe. And I don't have proof, but I still believe them just because I have reason to believe them. But at least I have reason to believe them. At least I still had some reason to back up uh, my, my belief, my, my faith in those things. But with the miracle you say today, there is absolutely no reason for me to believe it at all. Not only there's no proof, there's no reason at all. Yes, there is. There's plenty of reason for you to believe Lazarus' resurrection actually happened. Let me show you some of the reasons. I'll just do one. Let's go back to a few verses before. I think it's on the screen. Uh, John chapter 11, verses 17 to 19. Uh, if it's on the screen, you can go there, because I think it's good, helpful for us to read. If not, then just open up in your own Bibles. John 11, 17 to 19. This is a few verses before resur- uh, Lazarus was resurrected. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Look at this. Look at the amount of details John gave about what happened in verses 17 to 19. In a courtroom, this would be the perfect alibi. There's a time, there's a location, and there are witnesses. He gave a specific time, verse 17. Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. He gave the exact location, verse 18. Jesus was in Bethany, exactly two miles off from Jerusalem. And then he gave witnesses, verse 19. Many of the Jews who were there to console Mary and Martha, not Some, many, perhaps the whole town. In a legal courtroom, this would have been the perfect alibi. It would have been clear to the original readers that the author had nothing to hide. He's saying to the readers at the time, here's all the details. Here's the time. Here's the location. You could even confirm all this with the witnesses that was there. Go ahead. Do it. Check for yourself. Yeah, well, the witnesses, they could be scheming all together. They could all be in it, though, right? They could all be lying um, um, about this and in it together. Yes, that's true. A lot of people lie for their religion all the time. But who are the witnesses that John gives? They weren't Jesus' followers. They were mostly the Jews. (laughs) Who were the Jews? The Jews were the people that wanted him dead. The Jews are the people that didn't want this to be true. If John was finding some kind of elaborate plan to have everybody lie together, the Jews would have been the worst witnesses to choose from because they didn't like Jesus. So why did he give all this original information to the original readers and and say, ask them, even the people that don't want this to be true, go ahead, ask them, they're there, because he wasn't trying to make anything up. This is what happened. This is who he claims to be. Go ahead, check. And yet, even after John gave every opportunity and detail for anyone to, to, to debunk this whole story, yet this story and the whole Gospel of John was used as a legitimate public document that circulated inside and outside of the church at the early church years. And they wouldn't be doing that if one of the stories in the book were proven to be fabrication, especially not a story about resurrection from the dead. So apparently, even after given every opportunity in detail by John to disprove it, no one contested it, and it stood the test. You see? It's not totally unreasonable to believe that this happened. There there are plenty of good reasons of why it actually did. Now, can I empirically prove it? No, I can't. Just like I can't empirically prove God. All I can give you is good reason of why you should believe it. But as we've seen earlier, that's really all you need in life anyways. In everything else in life, all you need is good reason. To think that the baby on the screen is mine. 
to think that this is, this is going to be a good husband or a wife, to think that this bean actually cost 40,000 rupiah. All we needed was good reason to believe in those things. We don't need empirical proof. So why is it then, when it comes to Jesus' claims about himself and the authenticity of this miracle, all of a sudden, good reason isn't enough? Why? Why is it when it comes to this, all of a sudden, we demand empirical proof before we take that leap of faith? John is pleading with you here. Could it be? Could it be that the reason for disbelief is not a lack of proof? But like the Pharisees, you're afraid. You're afraid that if Jesus' claims were true, you'd lose autonomy. If it's true, you'd lose power. You'd lose control over your whole life, and you just don't want to lose it. And it's scary. I get it. I'm not trying to be sarcastic. I know. It, it, it's frightening to lose all that power and give God or anyone else that kind of authority. It's terrifying. And think, I think all of us can relate to the Pharisees. Why? Because most of us have been hurt badly in the past when we've given somebody else that kind of authority and trust over our lives. They've betrayed it. They've used their power and trust to abuse our trust for their own gain, and they've left us in pieces. It's scary. But let's move on in the passage. And I hope that we see that Jesus is worth your trust. And it's safe to give this God the kind of control over you. Point number three, how he assures you. There is one very strange part of the passage where after Caiaphas shares his plan to kill Jesus and, and, and have Romans crucify him, John, our author, inserts himself in the narrative. It's like in a movie when the, when the narrator just kind of voices in, inserts himself, right? And that's what John did in verse 51 to 53. He, Caiaphas, did not say uh, this on his own, John says. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. But how can Caiaphas's terrible plan to kill Jesus be a prophecy? Aren't prophecies filled with things concerning God's plan and will about redemption? How can what Caiaphas said be considered as God's plan? Well, friends, here's where God shows off to us. He's showing off ultimate power and his eternal love. Two things that you need to know and trust that he has abundance of if you're ever going to give him that much authority over your life. If you're ever going to give him that much trust, he needs to be a safe place for you. And for him to be a safe place, he needs to be ultimately powerful and ultimately loving. One, he's all-powerful. Where do we see that? Yes, Caiaphas constructed an evil plan to kill Jesus and crucify him. But look at how God turned that evil plan around and used it for his own glory. How? Well, because it was Jesus' death through the cross in where God won his victory. God actually accomplished his eternal plan of redemption to give his people life through Caiaphas' evil schemes. Why do you think in point number one, we said imperfect people like us can have the audacity to call God Father? Because God the Son was killed in our place. Why do you think guilty people like us can be considered as innocent by God? 
because God himself put on flesh and was wrongly accused as a criminal by a human court of law so that sinful people like us can be counted as innocent children of God by a heavenly court of law. God won his victory through the power and the schemes of his enemy. Ultimate power. Do you see that? Throw your graves away. Throw your grave clothes away. I have died for you. I have won the victory for you. Psalm 214 says, Nations rage, people plot in vain, kings and rulers take counsel, but he who sits in heaven laughs. Behold the power of your God. See, power is the ability to overcome your enemies with your, with, with your own strength. But ultimate power is the ability to sit on your own throne and laugh as you defeat your enemies through their own power and their own schemes. That isn't just power. That's sovereignty. This is an absolute sovereign God. Behold, Christian, who you worship. But not only is he ultimately powerful, he's ultimately loving. Look at verse 55. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. So before the Passover, a lot of Jews came to Jerusalem to be ceremonially cleansed. But Jesus didn't go there. Where did Jesus go? Verse 54. said that he went to a region called Ephraim. Why? Why didn't he go to Jerusalem and be cleansed like everybody else? Because he didn't need cleansing. Because he was going to be the one that does all the cleansing when he climbs on that cross for you. Jesus knew. He knew. He knew the second he raised Lazarus from the dead, he was going to have to climb on the grave for him. He knew how high the tensions were between him and the Pharisees in end of chapter 10. He knew, I mean, after he did it, people tattletailed on him, the Pharisees, right away. He knew that the resurrection would be the last straw. And if he did that, if he did that, he'd have to be willing to die for it. He knew. He knew the only way he can rise us up from the grave is if he was willing to enter it for us. He's ultimately loving. Ultimately powerful, ultimately loving. You see? You see, you can trust him. You really can trust him. It'll be okay. He's powerful. He's loving. I know it's scary to give your life over like that. And I know people in the past have betrayed that trust, but not him. Never him. No one can scheme against him. No one can take away his love for you. It's solidified on that cross. And yes, if Jesus becomes your Lord and Savior, if you trust this claim, things will change. Your life will be turned upside down. And that's scary. It's scary. But unless you see the cross, how powerful and how loving he is, you'll never be able to trust him with that kind of authority over your life. What you need is not more proof. What you need is not more reason. What you need is to see the cross telling you, trust me, I got you. A place that shows all of his might and all of his power and a place that shows you that he intends to you all of that might and power for your good. You can trust him. So if you're here today and you've believed, you've placed your faith in this God in Christ, remember the benefits you have in Christ. You get to call God Father. Do you call him that often? Do you pray to him in that manner? 
do you utilize the access you have to him? Only one person has the right to wake the king up at night. And that's not the general of a military leader. That's not the financial director of the city. You know who has the right to wake up a king at night? His sons and daughters. His children does. You have that right. Utilize it. Pray. Do you pray? Go to him as your father. And remember, please remember, Christian, you're no longer guilty. Your sins, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, your sins, not in part, but the whole, have been put on the cross and you bear it no more. Do you believe that? Do you live your life like that? Or do you still walk around as if you're in the courtroom trying to justify yourself? If you're here today, you're still exploring, you haven't believed and, and, and you still want more reason and, and, and um, I'd love to talk to you afterwards or maybe later, but, but John is at the very least asking you to consider. He's at the very least asking you to consider. Is my disbelief really caused by a lack of proof? If so, then why is it for almost every other big decision in my life, having good reason is enough for me to take the leap of faith to believe in it? But yet when it comes to God and Jesus' claims, good reason for some reason isn't enough for me to take a leap of faith in this area. All of a sudden, in this area, I demand empirical proof, something that I never demanded anywhere else in my life. Why? Could it be? Could it be that you just can't trust him to have that much power and control over you, that it's scary? If what John is saying is true, what you need is not more proof or reason. What you need is to look on the cross and be convinced that he is a God whose plans will never falter, and he is a God whose love for you will never fade. Worship him. Walk in boldness in him. Give everything to him. He's got you. Let's pray. Father, the ability to obey you, the ability to trust in you, the ability to have your truths land on circumcised ears or, or ears that can hear as we read in our call to worship cannot be from us. It must be from you. We plead with you, Father, today, make this truth real. Make it seep so deep in our hearts that those who are in you are reminded of who they are and they would walk boldly as your children, no longer wearing grave clothes. And if those here are exploring and finding, Lord, I pray that you continue to walk with them in this journey and have anyone here talk with them about any concerns or thoughts or questions they may have. But Father, reveal to them what it is you're trying to reveal through your word, John. For the will to obey cannot come from us. It must be from you. May those who have ears truly hear. In Jesus' name we pray.